The vast majority of people in the church, you would think they're thriving. They are not. The vast majority of Christians are not living out the latter part of John 10, 10, abundant living. They are not. The, I would argue over 90% of self-described followers of Jesus are survivors. They have yet to learn the secret of what it looks like to thrive. And, and they live in the desert. They're satisfied with manna. They get it every morning. It's easy, right? So it's manna in the desert and, and they're satisfied. And they settle. They settle. They settle for less. But the, the thrivers are those that just take, it's beyond taking risk. They are compelled, driven. That's why your relationship with the Spirit of God is so critical. So for those of you who may not know Sammy, Sam, what do you want me to call you? Billy McKillicuddy. Billy McKillicuddy. <laughs> Billy McKillicuddy. Uh, Maybe give them just a quick snapshot of who you are and, and a little bit of just your story. Yeah, first of all, honored to be here, blessed to be here. I'm glad you're all morning people with the exception of a few. Uh, I'm married to uh, a lovely young lady. Her name is Eva. I met her when I was 11. Uh, we met in an Assembly of God church, and she has this anointing where unless she has her coffee, no words come out of her mouth. And I really mean that, like no words. There's no interaction until coffee time, so God... God <laughs> God bless you. Bless you. We were saying that's my wife too. Yeah, no, it's a strange thing. It happens in the universe. Uh, I'm, a, I'm originally from the great state of Pennsylvania. Uh, I was raised in Bethlehem, which gives me a messianic complex automatically. My dad was a Mack truck worker. My mom was a homemaker. Uh, I, I grew up with that Calvinistic work ethic from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, my parents were, uh, they, they just moved from Puerto Rico, ended up in uh, Pennsylvania. Our, our descendants are from uh, great-grandparents from Spain, from a part called Galicia. Galicia, Barcelona, Barcelona, Galicia. So where you have to say it if you're from Spain. From Northern Spain to Puerto Rico, ended up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So uh, my parents uh, gave me a choice. Uh, uh, which was basically evangelical home. My mom gave me a choice, go to church or die. Um, and, and I chose wisely. <laughs> and I'm here today to, you know, to actually be a, a, a walking testimony. Um, I, I was an ag uh, evangelical agnostic. Didn't I'm a math and science guy. I, I went to Penn State, uh, graduated from Lehigh University. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a math-like uh, I have strong affinity for mathematics. I still believe that calculus is God's language. So if you failed algebra, you're probably not saved. Um, question your salvation. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Of course, there's still a chance. Uh, um, the grace of God. But so I, I, everything I saw in church to me uh, was like Elmer Gentry, the whole, you know, snake oil salesman sort of motif, I doubt. And then it was an assembly, like a, like a Pentecostal church, people like getting slain and speaking in tongues. It's like, who does that, right? This, this is completely irrational. It's not normal. It's mass hysteria. So I doubted everything. I was obligated to go to church. And one day a guy comes in, I'll give you, I'll give you names. His name is Bernie Gallow. He walks in from Teen Challenge. Now, my pastor invited the Teen Challenge Choir from Rehersburg, David Wilkerson's ministry. And, and it's about, what, two hours away from our church in the Lehigh Valley. Guy walks in, I'm like 13 years old, and he starts, oh, this is the 80s now. Holy Spirit, thou art welcome in this place. Holy Spirit. And he stops midstream. First time I ever met this guy, choir up there. And the guy goes, Holy Spirit. 
the Lord says, Sammy, Sammy. There's a young Samuel, a Sammy in this church. Now, I'm the only Sammy in church, the only one, right? By the way, if you ever want to go to a Hispanic church and you want to prophesy accurately and not miss it, just say, God has a word for Jose or Maria. <laughs> right? Because you can't miss it. God has a word for Maria. It's my word. It's my like a hundred, a hundred Marias will raise her hand. But Sammy wasn't like your normal cup of tea in that context. And I went like, oh, snap, right? And then it, my pastor, you know, the church, it, it was a Latino church, AG church. So the church really introverted, really quiet. I'm kidding. Um, they, they actually said, ahí está el muchacho, which means ahí está el muchacho. And so... <laughs> My pastor said, come up here, Sammy. My pastor's still alive. He's in his 80s now, Luis Felipe Lugo. He, so they, they, I come up, and I'm coming up and going like, oh, this can't be real, right? If this rapture stuff that this guy preaches is legit, come Lord Jesus right now. Come Lord Jesus now. Maranatha on steroids. So I come up, guy looks at me and says, oh, Sammy, you're a boy. You're becoming a man. And, and this, is the, this is God's word. He lays out everything. Not, not the generic sort of prophecy of the Lord says, I will bless you. Not that. With great specificity. And I mean laying it all out. Everything. Everything I'm doing. Then he concludes. Takes his back. Concludes and goes, oh, what? The Lord says, you will be praying for presidents of the United States of America. Wow. First of all, in the crowd is the young lady who saw it all, who said, man, if this is legit, I'm going to wait for that boy to grow up and I'm going to marry him. That's my wife of 34 years. So if you're single, I'm kidding. I'm just saying, but that really, presidents. And that's how I ended up advising George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump participating in two prayer, three, two prayer inaugurations, two inaugurations where I prayed. And, and in spite of me, there is a plan from heaven that will come to pass, and hence that's, I, have, I have no qualms, no, no concern regarding my children and my children's children. All of God's promises are yes and amen in the finished work of Christ, and they will come to pass. And that's how I got here in, in this place. Powerful. When you started praying, the very first president you prayed for was George W. Bush. So what year was that when you were like invited to go to the White House, and how did you feel going there? the first time that you were going to go and meet with the president, pray with them. Like what, how did that happen? So that happened in George W. Bush's second term. Um, and uh, again, didn't knock on any door, didn't seek anything. Uh, it was just God ordained. It, it, it was a completely Romans 8.30. He has called you, chosen you, given you right standing and placed upon you the glory for you to carry. Completely God ordained, predestined. And so I, I got a call years later. I'm with Carl Rove. Y'all may know who Carl Rove is. Some of y'all may have. I'm with Carl Rove having a steak dinner in Sacramento. And we're strategizing about districts and, and you know, engaging voter registration and so forth. And, and, and Carl was just brilliant. He was data mining before the algorithms regarding precincts and voter turnout and so forth and projections and predictions. And, and Carl and I are talking and he's going, hey, Sam, Sam, Sam. And I go, Carl, man, I never asked you, how in the world did you, did you connect with me and he went, Sammy, interesting story. I was on my desk and on a ripped piece of paper was your, a cell number 
And I just called it and it was you. And that's how we connected. And I go like, where, what, but you know, what, how did, had no idea. So God is a powerful God. Uh, I'm here as a byproduct of legitimate, biblically substantiated prophetic impartation with a supernatural deliverable that cannot and will not be denied. So it became a thing. George W. Bush, by the way, little, some of y'all know President Bush, uh, an unknown fact. Back in the day, second term, the first thing that impressed me when I'm with him, this guy was buff. Like Bill, like, dude, what are you doing? Like steroid creatine buff, ripped. And he would lift weights and he would run until he, he injured his knee. But one of the nicest people you could ever meet, just one of the nicest human beings you could ever meet. And that's how I got into the White House. And, um, and now we're living happily ever after. Wow. So, okay, share a little bit about, because you started out pastoring a church. No. No. Talk no. about how you got into pastoring and then what you're doing no, no. now with movies. Yeah, no, no, no. I started out in ministry preaching. Um, and um, maybe the the tipping point may have been in 90s preaching. Uh, I, was a, I was a kid, right? Literally when I was 14, started preaching, blah, blah, blah. The, the tipping point may have been at the old Indianapolis Colt Stadium. Back in the day, the year 2000, the Assemblies of God invited me to do a celebration 2000, and they had me speak next to Yonggi Cho. Uh, so Tell I was, everyone who Yonggi Cho is in case they don't know who he is. At that time, he was the pastor of the largest church on the planet. South Korea. South Korea. South Korea. About a million people in their church. Yoedo Full Gospel Church, yes. And they would have the greatest like morning 5 a.m. prayer times, right? My wife would never attend if she would live in Korea, by the way. It would never qualify. Uh, but it, it was a thing. So I'm invited, and I'm a kid, to preach right, right, uh, right before him. And, and that right there, God just, there was an anointing, grace of God, way beyond me again. And God just used that moment. And from there, well, we started doing some major conferences, uh, started advising presidents. CNN brought me on. And at that time, I was, I was just constantly on CNN, 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 before I was on Fox. Uh, and the thing took off. So I'm speaking and I'm advising presidents, basically. I'm leading a network of churches, over 40,000 strong, called the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. We grew that to over 45,000. I, I inherited it with about 3,000. And God gave us grace and favor. And then, uh, uh, just give you names. I, I came out of preaching for uh, uh, a very well-known pastor, a bishop from Dallas that everybody here would recognize. Um, and I preached for his conference, came out of his conference, jumped on the American Airlines flight at DFW, seated, and Holy Spirit hit me and said, aha, Sacramento, where I live. Uh, Multi-ethnic church. Here it is, Sam. Start a church and I'm going to bless it. And here, here's a rubric. It has to be Christ-centered, Bible-based, Spirit-empowered, never quench the Spirit. It has to be multi-ethnic, multi-generational. Um, and here, here's the clue. You're gonna, this is like August. Uh, first week, this is going to sound totally outrageous, but history is history. You're going to start this by the end of September. Forget about church planning 101, the ARC model, God bless them all. I bypass all of that, right? And if you're, if you, on day one, if you have anything less than 300, this is you speaking to yourself. If you have over 300, it's me and I'm going to bless it and grow it. And we did. 
We started September the 14th, uh, 2010, and we had 313 people in attendance day one, and the rest is history. So we started a multi-ethnic kingdom culture church that loves Jesus, uh, very similar to Victory, uh, very very similar to in the DNA and the way we lay out the Word of God. Um, And yeah, here we are. Come on. Powerful. Love it. So... I think it's very intriguing. I don't know that I've ever met another pastor um, who has interacted and prayed with the variety of presidents that you have. And in that, walking that fine line of always praying for whoever God gives you the opportunity to pray for, how does that affect just, you know, as you're interacting with other people who disagree with different policies and different people, um, especially in the last like seven, eight years and pastoring a church in California. How has that been just leading people? I think one thing that we all ask as leaders is how do I lead people well? And how do I lead people who may not always agree with every decision I make? Um, and how do I make sure that I stay mentally and physically, emotionally fit, spiritually fit for what God's called me to do? Yeah, it's, it's challenging because I live in California. And, and so beyond praying, all of them brought me in in some sort of advisory capacity. So we had a, a specific portfolio with President Bush back then. It was the marriage amendment, education, and immigration. With President Obama, uh, religious liberty, uh, immigration reform, um, and that's about it. With President Trump, A to Z. And I mean A to Z. Uh, we did, we advised them, I advised them on a, but matter of fact, with President Trump, it was different. Different relationship, different dynamic. President Trump is different. President Trump is different. He's just a tad different. Um, so he brought me in to such a point. This is all, you could do your Google due diligence on all of this. New York Times had a feature on this. So President Trump brought me in and plethora of issues. The whole fight between President Trump and Nancy Pelosi on immigration, he brought me in. Said, I, and I want you to go ahead. She doesn't want to talk to me. Go ahead and talk to her on my behalf. So I went to the White House, sat down. What's, what's the exchange and we did a transactional exchange of what would it would look like, X number of billions of dollars to finish building the wall in exchange for dreamers, X number of dreamers uh, becoming uh, citizens inevitably, right? So it was a great exchange. So I would be in the White House. I would cross. I would go with Nancy Pelosi, the speaker. She would look, and I, but I worked with Nancy Pelosi back during Bush and Obama. So we had a relationship. She would call me the uh, Latino evangelical pope. I don't even know what that means. Um <clears throat> So she would text me. I would be like preaching somewhere and she would text me and says, uh, Pastor Sammy, give me a call. So I would give her a call. And, you know, it's like, all right. So I'm negotiating back and forth and we even did a press conference and all that. Different dynamic. But here's the rubric that guides me with whomever it's in the White House. Same rubric. Here it is. Today's complacency is tomorrow's captivity. So I walk in going, Sam, remember this. Today's complacency is tomorrow's captivity. Number two, you are what you tolerate. Number three, truth must never be sacrificed on the altar of political or cultural expediency, ever. Number four, there is no such animal as comfortable Christianity. And number five, Sammy, when you walk into the White House, always reconcile your eschatology with your missiology, which means what? Don't go in there with a spirit of escapism, which I do believe Christ is returning, without a doubt. But don't go in there going like, this doesn't really matter. He's coming tomorrow. 
deuces, we're out of here, right? Go in there knowing that while, while, while we are waiting for Jesus to come down, he is waiting for his church to stand up. So never compromise. So I walk into the White House. That's my rubric, whomever it is. And one funny thing I do, in all the meetings, in the Oval Office with the presidents, Trump, Obama, Bush, same thing. I walk in there, I go, Holy Spirit, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to walk in there. I'm not going to say anything. Not one iota of a word unless I am called upon. If you want me to speak, you will convict the president, the chief of staff, the vice president to call me out by name and say, what say ye? And unless they call me out, I will not speak one word. So I'm the guy. I'm usually the last guy that speaks because I'm the, I'm the guy in the corner, not the guy in the front trying to get the attention. I'm the guy in the corner going like, if you want me to speak, you just call upon me. I'm ready. We're ready to go. But I will not speak unless I'm called upon. And without fail, every single time there was a decisive moment where God wanted me to somehow share. And it was just weird, man. I'm in the White House. I'm walking down the corridor in the West Wing and I'm praying in the spirit. I'm praying. Can I go to the bathroom? Yeah, I'm going to the West Wing toilet. And en route, I'm going, I'm just praying in the spirit, praying in the spirit. So it's just, these are the values that guide me and all of my interactions at that level. Mm. Okay. I'm going to ask you some business questions. I asked some of our guys to send me some questions. Um, That's how, it. No, no taboo questions. You can ask me whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You told me I could ask you whatever. Okay. Right. How do you deal with slash correct people that are on your team who have been on the team for years versus new team members? Is there a difference between how you would deal with someone who's been with you for 10, 15 years and someone who's been with you for one year? And how do you handle that as the leader? Yes and no. It's both and. You, you have the same general cultural landscape that must be created and sustained for everyone about exception. So be that a culture of mutual respect, honor, love, appreciation, and so forth. Uh, whatever it may be, calling, covenant, and culture. You develop that for everyone. But of course, there's a time for acculturation and assimilation and integration for your new, your new staff personnel. So you deal with them in a way where it's, it, it's developmental. You develop them. You there, there is a process of maturity within the ethos of the organization or the church ministry or, or the business, whatever it may be. So you give them time. You create you, you, a little bit of bandwidth, create time. But then there comes a time where you have expectations, where it's full assimilation into the collective sort of spirit of your ministry, organization, or business. So your expectations increase. So yeah, you do treat them a little bit differently without abandoning the collective sort of values that are never sacrificed, regardless of the time they have been with the organization. When you, by the way, that was amazing. Uh, when you have corrected someone, have you ever gotten to the place where you're like, I think I came down too hard on that person? Or are you like, I think I'm the opposite. I probably go a little more grace and I should be more hardline truth with some of I am guilty of both. Okay. But I've matured in the, because I was, I was, we all mature. There was a level of immaturity when I first started. Uh, and very type A driven alpha male deliverables, outcomes, metrics, metric obsession, right? And, and then you grow up. And there, there comes a time, right? When you hit about 40 years of age, you kind of like, what in the world was I? Did I? What? And then you grow up. And then the, the older you become, uh, the more grace filled you become. 
It is what it is. Yeah. Um, and so you be, you create more space. But I did both. I, I came down too hard. And then on another occasion, I wanted to be more grace-filled than Jesus. And Jesus went like, yo, dude, like, no, you can't outgrace me. Like, <laughs> like there's a limit. And you have to put your foot down and there is a limit. So yeah, I've done both. I'm guilty of both. Okay, I'm going to switch it up. Um, you don't just obviously pastor and pray with presidents, but you started making movies. Yeah. How did you get into that? And why did you get into that? Sam Rodriguez is a byproduct of legitimate God showing up prophetic impartation that transcends mathematical probability for the purpose of convincing me that it's God. Not everyone needs this, but Sam Rodriguez is a walking Thomas. I'm a doubter. I'm a skeptic. And because of that, I needed some guy to show up when I was 13. And I've had that throughout the course of my entire life. I've had some supernatural things that I still hold on to because of my, my mind. And if not for that, I wouldn't even be here to a great degree, right? So here I am, starting that church in Sacramento about year two, year three. It popped. It blew up. And I'm renting. Don't have the money renting. And we were renting from another church ministry that had a building and we outgrew that building. And the church pastor, he was so gracious. He calls me up and says, I'm on the highway, a 99 in Sacramento. Sammy, we love you. Hey buddy, you're going to have to leave. And I went, what? I've never been evicted before. Uh, and I go, why? He goes, well, you outgrew us. And you outgrew the facilities. And now even in the building that we're not present, your parking space, your you, Sunday mornings is jam-packed. And you, like you outgrew us and taking over. So you're going to have to leave. I go like, wow. Well, uh, I, I respect that. So I guess I have 90 days or six months. No, you have a month. And then words came out of, anyway, the point is, um, and that I repented. Um, and that's what we do. So uh so you know, we, we're in a place, we're in that place before we get kicked out. And a woman, again, I give you names, full transparency, a, a woman named Cindy Jacobs. Cindy comes to our church and, and I've known Cindy for years and she's been speaking prophetically into my life since I was a young buckaroo, since I was advising George W. Bush and so forth. Uh, so she comes in and says, Sammy, the Lord has a word for you. And I'm going, yeah, buildings, resources, go Jesus. Go Jesus, come on. Keys, campuses, hey, 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 glory to God, right? She says, stand up, Sammy. So I stand up in front of my entire church and she looks at me and goes, the Lord says Hollywood. What? Dude, I was an old school Pentecostal preacher that would preach against Hollywood. There's no way. I'm driving back home with my wife and I'm going, hey, what do you think of that word? Like, I'm not doubting it. Like, she's like she's batting a thousand, right? Like, thus far. So, it's all about stats, and she's hitting it. But this one? Like, why not buildings, money, you know? Hollywood? Immediately thereafter, by coinkadink, I get a call from Paramount. We want you to come in and consult on a film. On a film. That, that Russell Crowe flop Noah film? Where it combined like the the, the walking rocks. That was 2011, 12, 13. And I consulted. They brought me in, just me. And I I'm in Hollywood. I'm in Burbank, and I'm watching the movie by myself, screening. This is pre this is pre post production. 
And before the score, all of that, uh, and I'm looking at it, and the film is over, and the executive vice president looks at me and says, Pastor Sam, what, what say ye? And I go, hmm. cinematography was brilliant. <laughs> uh, shots were clean and crisp. He says, no, but does it resonate with, with you? I go, the, the shots were really crisp and clear. But does, the storyline, does it really, and I go like, I'm going to be very honest. There is nothing in that movie that lines up with the book of Genesis. <laughs> like nothing. So do you think like, like evangelicals and Christians will resonate? I go like, the shots were crisp and clear. And he basically heard me say it's going to flop, and it did. That, that, that gave us a reputation in Hollywood. Mark and Roma, Mark Burnett and Roma Downey brought me in. We became really good friends, and I consulted on a number of their projects. And then, you know, Hollywood again. Then I come out of preaching from Dallas again, awkwardly enough, and I'm on the flight, and this is 2015. I see an RSS feedback then before you have your, like, your notifications and all that. This is before Wi-Fi on the flight. And here's the feed. Boy dies, mom prays, boy comes back to life. Boom, shut the door, land in Sacramento, and I'm, and I'm going, Googling, what was that about? The story about a, mom, a boy who died, John Smith, mom prayed, Joyce, came back to life. Medically certifiable. This is not from a Christian network. And I'm going like, whoa. So I, I, I do a deep dive, legitimate story. And I go like, wow. So I get on my program on TBN and I go like, hey, I just saw this. There's a boy who died and doctors certified the fact that he died for over 15 minutes and he came back to life. And that was it. Mom DMs me on Facebook Messenger back in the day and says, Pastor Sam, I follow you. I've been watching you for years. You spoke about me and my son. My name is Joy Smith. And respectfully, sir, uh, you're mischaracterizing what took place. I felt bad. I went like, oh, I'm embellishing and exaggerating. What happened? She went, no, no. My son never died for 15 minutes. I go, I apologize, ma'am. You know, he died for one hour and eight minutes. And I went, ma'am, let's talk. Ma'am, I'm not questioning your integrity. God forbid. One hour and eight minutes. Who would like, like certify this? Who do you want to talk to? Do all your doctors and nurses certify? 100%. One hour and eight minutes? Yes. You mean like his brain was still alive, his heart? No, no, no. Brain dead, heart dead, dead. I go, that would be like the Lazarus story, 21st century, that amount of time has, oh, who do you want to talk to? We did our due diligence completely. Every single person signed off. This boy died. He fell in ice uh, next to St. Louis, Missouri. He fell in, 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 in January of 2015, drowned, took him out. He was dead for an hour, over an hour. They tried to resuscitate him. Brain dead, heart dead, completely dead. They put the cover on him. Mom walks in. And your son's been dead for over an hour, ma'am. We try to resuscitate him. Sorry, it's been over an hour. And she just doesn't say one word. She just looks around and says, Holy Spirit, bring my son back to life right now. Beep, 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 beep. The lead nurse, the head nurse, had her hand on the sheet, the bed sheet covering him up. 
The moment she prayed, she testified that a wave hit the body that went woof, woof, and pushed her hand off. And that boy came back to life. He came back to life. The number one specialist on drowning came in, went through a process with him, looked at the mom and said, I can't believe he came back to life. Everyone signed off. Not one person said it never happened. Every nurse in the room, every doctor, 100% happened. 100%, even non-believers, this really took place. So the, all of a sudden, the doctor comes in, the specialist and says, it's gonna be brain dead. You're wasting your time. He's going to inevitably die. If not, he's going to be, you know, in, in completely unable to do anything in life. So you're wasting your time. That boy is not only, he's completely healthy. No sign, like it never happened. He's a dad now. Um, and he's pastoring, loving Jesus. So when I first read that story and, and I confirmed everything, God said, make it into a movie. Sam, that's your job. So we made it into a movie. It's called Breakthrough. It won the Dove Award and it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Song. There it is, Breakthrough the movie. And Okay, yeah, amazing. What a story. You skipped a big process of this. Uh, to make a movie requires millions of dollars. Yeah, requires yeah. backing of a studio in some way and then getting theaters to hmm. take the movie and put it out there. How did you get all the money to do it? How did you get people convinced, hey, hey, this miracle story is worth making? And then did you see a return on the investment? So there's two ways of doing movies. One is you you develop your own narrative, your arc, your storyline, and then you find investors that that like look at your torch, your layman's terms would be reels, um, and you know, you create a deck and so forth, uh, great script and so forth. You do all of that. And then you get investors. Hey, y'all want to get into this? And then here's your guarantee, not your guarantee, but your commitment if this thing succeeds, this is your return and so forth. That's one way. I did it the other way. This is, God said, make it into a movie, Samuel. So I looked for people in the industry that I've worked with as a consultant. Huh, he connects the dots. And I went, yeah, I don't, I don't have... $15 million, $10 million. Um, I'm going to find a studio that's actually going to do this movie, but a non-Christian studio. My objective was the Sam Rodriguez narrative. I want to work through secular means for the purpose of being light in the midst of darkness. I want to be a counterculture narrative. So I just want to spot, and God bless Christian studios, but that's not like my modus operandi. So I looked for studios and I have a friend, I had a friend that I was consulting with and we became really like, good friends, come over for Christmas and, and so forth. His name is Devon Franklin. So Devon, my buddy would come home and we would have dinner. At that time, he was married to Megan Good and, and we would like chill, and, but we never mixed friendship with business, right? And Devon at that time was working for Sony. And I looked at Devon and went, Devon, man, I don't want to like jeopardize our friendship, but I have an idea for a film. And God's really placed in my heart. And I gave him the idea and he went like, wow, that's a wild story. Uh, Pastor Sam, that's wild. I just don't see any studio, secular studio, doing a movie about the power of the Holy Spirit. It's never been done before. And I went like, so he blew me off. So he went like, yeah, it's not going to happen. So I went, dude, you don't get this, right? So I'm on TBN again. I'm hosting Praise. I invite, by coincidence, I invite Devon. And I invited the kid who died. It's by a co totally coincidental. <laughs> I invited his mom, You're the smart. kid's mom. Devon has no idea. Put him in the green room. I walk in with my Starbucks. 
go, hey, oh, Devon, by the way, I'm gonna interview you first and I have other guests today. But by the way, Devon, the guests are, this is John, this is Joyce. Devon, remember that kid that died for an hour and eight minutes? That's him. I'm gonna go to the bathroom. Bye-bye, guys. They interacted in the green room. I interviewed Devon first. And usually the first guest would get off stage and then boom, you know, TBN commercial, blah, blah, blah. I, this time I kept Devon on stage. I went like, Devon, stick around. Joyce and John, come on down. Interviewed him in front of Devon. Interview is over, TBN praise is over. Devon stands up, looks at me and says, all right, Pastor Sam, you did it. We're gonna do your film. We're gonna make this happen somehow. We're gonna find a way. <laughs> come on. So, so he came alongside as my partner and we pitched it. To, to Sony, and Sony said, what, a film about the power of the Holy Spirit? Like, what? Yeah, the kid died. Sony did their legal due diligence, confirmed with every doctor, every nurse, the legitimacy of the story, and they went like, oh, wow, a real-life resurrection story. They funded it, and $14 million it cost. That's the price tag for the film. $14 million, a little bit more for marketing, but part of the 14 was for marketing, and it's gross close to $60 million worldwide, and God really blessed it, so the return on investment yeah but look what the lord has done man that's so okay yeah so that comes out so don't and, don't deny connections yeah. there are people that that i do believe in this unbelievably god design the universe just the, the beauty of creation the way the universe works right uh in the, the degrees of the earth as it pertains to the moon and the sun and and the power of gravity and what that looks like and even the continual expansion of the universe what that looks like um, even some of the stuff we're seeing with AI, this God algorithm created reality, that, which is powerful, it's so perfectly designed mm. to deny the reality of God. And that's why the Andrew Hubermans and the MIT people are right now, they're having this great come to Jesus moment because it's very just, you can't deny the can't math deny. and the science, right? They both, they, 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 they point to an architect that is, that is unbelievably fully committed to the fulfillment of his plan. The people God connects you to, don't, don't negate these moments. There are doors and people that God will bring your way. You are who surrounds you. And surround yourself with people that will lift your game. Mm. If you're surrounded by pessimists, people that are toxic, negativity, uh, in, in perpetual entitlement victimization modalities, you become inevitably that person. Yeah. Surround yourself with people that will elevate your game intellectually, yeah. spiritually, financially. If all you do is hang around people that are impoverished, and I don't say, I say that with great empathy, but with, that are impoverished, not just financially, but mentally, spiritually, and so forth. And their you, ideas. You, you will end up impoverished. Mm -hmm. You are who surrounds you. So surround yourself with people that elevate your game. Yeah. And I was connected to people in Hollywood, not knowing that one day God would give me the opportunity to produce films. But, but be mindful of your connections. Yeah. Nurture them. Honor them. Respect that. And with great humility, just give it to God and see God just connect the dots and dreams become reality. I love it. You know, one of the things that you were talking about there is recognizing a moment to capitalize on an opportunity and the balance of knowing, okay, I don't want to overstep my boundaries with this individual like you had with Devon, right. but I also recognize God is up to something. And this is not just going to benefit Devon and Sony. This is going to benefit the world to yeah. experience 
a story that could change their perspective in theology. So talk a little bit about that balance of not overstepping a relationship in some way, but taking the risk. Because I think something that stops all of us maybe from taking that risk is the fear of losing a relationship, hurting a friendship, whatever that might look like, a network, a connection, but at the same time recognizing, I feel like this opportunity could benefit them just as much. Every single person on the planet, every single business person, politician, Christian leader, mom, dad, spouse, so forth, every single person can fall into one of these three respective categories. Every single human being. You're either failing, surviving, or thriving. Period. Every single person. You're either in failure, survival, or thriving mode which to use a biblical outline, uh, you're either in Egypt, you're in the desert, or you're in the promised land. Every single person. In order for you to, and the vast majority are not, it, it, well, if you don't have Christ, I mean, you're, you're obviously there's, there's failure there, but the vast majority of people in the church, you would think they're thriving, they are not. The vast majority of Christians are not living out the latter part of John 10, 10, abundant living. They are not. The, I would argue over 90% of self-described followers of Jesus are survivors. They have yet to learn the secret of what it looks like to thrive. Mm. And, and they live in the desert. They're satisfied with manna. They get it every morning. It's easy, right? So it's manna in the desert and, and they're satisfied. And they settle. They settle. They settle for less. But the, the thrivers are those that just take it's beyond taking risk. They are compelled, driven. That's why your relationship with the Spirit of God is so critical. Yeah. Where you hear from heaven and you're so driven by what you hear from heaven that you know it's beyond you. And there's something, an imperative, an impetus that drives you every single day where it's beyond you. And it's affirmed, biblically, scripturally substantiated. So it's not emotionalism. It's not exuberance that drives you to go occupy the promises of God. Sam, do it. Don't stay in the desert. Sam, there will be giants in your land of promise that you have to bring down. There will be walls you have to shout down. There will be battles that have to be fought. The great news is the battle belongs to him. And the giants you bring down, your children will walk upon the ruins of what you bring down in your generation. So it's not just about you. It's about your children and your children's children. Build some altars, by the way, along the way, Sam. Do it. Go to Gilgal and build some altars for, the, for, your, for your kids and your grandkids and say, aha, that's how my granddaddy, that's how my dad got there. But you have to take, you want to use, use the word risk, take the step, be driven. Don't settle. I'll give you one little thing. Mark chapter eight, one of the coolest stories. Uh, um, that's my next book that'll come out in a couple years. In Mark chapter eight. And this is a new revelation for me. Guy comes along, Jesus comes along and, and looks at a guy, you know, this guy takes him out of the village, Bethsaida, and he's blind. Um, and Jesus comes along, right? That's the whole holy hygiene, anointed allergies thing, right? And spits in the eyes, right? And then looks at the guy, never done this before. Hey, so did it work? When did Jesus ever ask any of the recipients of his power, is it working? Looks at the guy who he just spit in his eyes, right? Blind man. So can you see? When? Like when? When that's Jesus? It was done with all full intentionality. It was intentional. Like why would Jesus second guess himself? He wouldn't. 
the guy says, well, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I do, but it's, to be honest, I see, but it's not clear. Yeah. The people look like trees. All set up. Jesus wanted to know whether or not this man would settle for seeing trees. For seeing, seeing something, but not everything clearly. Are you willing to settle for seeing a part of your vision come to pass without seeing all of it come to pass? And I would argue the vast majority of people, even in the church, settle for trees. We get something, but not everything. And Jesus tested him and went like, yeah, yeah. Boom. He laid his hands on him again. They didn't spit again, but laid his hands on him again. And he saw clearly and his vision was restored. My message is, if you want to thrive, don't settle for trees. Don't ever settle for anything less than everything God promised you and your family. Never settle for trees. And that's what drives me every day. In my church, in my health, in my family, whatever it is, I never tolerate anything less than everything God promised me. So good. I love it. My family watched your second movie that came out, I think. Is it your second movie, Flaming Hot? Yeah, Flaming Hot. Okay. Second major so the title is really interesting and funny for people who don't know what the story's about. Do you want to give them real quickly how you got this idea for this second movie? Because there's something in that second movie that we talked about with our kids, the power of hard work. Yeah. You just said something that I think was really good when you talked about not settling for trees. You use the word drive, driven. I think there's a lot of people in our current generation of the great resignation of people who just are not living with the same drive that our parents and our grandparents lived with to pursue the dream, to build the dream, to do what it takes and stay long enough to see the dream come to pass. Um, so we were teaching our kids after that movie we were like, hey, did you recognize how he hustled? Did you recognize what he did? Did you recognize that he stayed in a position that wasn't fun? Did you recognize how he was faithful somewhere, even when he wasn't celebrated, when he was tolerated? Because this culture teaches, hey, leave if you're not celebrated. But if you're ever going to do something great, you got to stay in a place that's not easy. And so we talked about the lessons from that movie. But talk a little bit about that script, that story, why you made that movie, and how it connects to your philosophy of the hard work ethic to see a dream come to pass. Another God moment, Sam, make this story. Richard Montañez, it's a biopic about the man who in essence invented the Flaming Hot Cheetos. Uh, but if beyond that, it's about marketing and hard work and faith and so forth. Uh, Richard serves on my board. So years ago, Richard and I, who are friends, I go, hey, Richard, board meeting, luncheon. Hey, Richard, you want to share your story for lunch here for the board members? And Richard went, why not, Sam? Goes up there, and then I, he finished just with his storyline, and I went like, hey, Richard, I'm going to make your story into a movie, buddy. And he laughed. He went, that's nah, not going to happen. I've heard that before. I go like, yeah, not from me. So we did. We made it into a movie. Um, and it's a story about a man who was, uh, you know, a second-grade dropout uh, gangbanger in Southern California, uh, immigrant son, uh, who— uh, just had a radical conversion experience. A lot of the movie was, I mean, let me be, uh, we're not, are we recording this? Well, yeah. well that's fine. But we can cut the tape. Oh, yeah, no, we're good, we're good. We'll edit it out. The, the movie is not fully 
depictive of the full narrative with the specific elements that took place. First of all, he came to Christ in a very very spirit-empowered church. His wife has an encounter with the Lord. She gets filled with the Holy Spirit. She joins an intercessory prayer group, and she comes along. This is for, they've never been Christians before, and he's working as a janitor at the Frito-Lay plant in Rancho Cucamonga. I did not just speak in tongues. It's a city in California. <laughs> and, and, and the wife comes along and says, honey, they, they, they want to pray for, you know, they, they call it intercessory prayer, whatever that is. I'm going to join the women. And they, they want me to know, to, to, to give them, like, what, is, what, what do we want to pray for? And he said, I just want to get our family out of poverty. So what do you want? I want, like, God to give me an idea. And that's how the whole Frito, the whole flaming hot developed. And the rest is history. Supernaturally, how it happened, he calls up the CEO in, in Chicago of PepsiCo, the, the, the parent company. And and he just it's a funny movie. You got to see it because this is the way that it actually the janitor happened. calling this the CEO janitor calls CEO and the PepsiCo and the secretary, the, the president's secretary, comes around and says, "So you are uh, one of the regional vice presidents? No. You're a state president? No. You must be a plant manager calling the wrong number because you're supposed to call your higher ups. No, I'm not a plant manager, sir. Who are you?" Oh, I'm just a janitor in Rancho Cucamonga. Do you know you're calling the president's office and there's a pecking order regarding who you report to? Yeah. But I, I have an idea. <laughs> you have an idea. <laughs> you know you're calling the president's office. He went, yeah. So she just put it on pause and she went. Now she testifies, post back to in the interviews. They're pretty cool. You can see them on YouTube. How something told her, go ahead, pass the call over. She's never done that before. Transfer the call. She transferred a call to the CEO, uh, who Tony Shalom, who you know from Monk, he played the role in the movie. And CEO says, who is this? She, he gives a whole story. I'm, I'm one of your janitors. What? One of my janitors? Why are you calling? And he laid out the story. And then the, the guy, the CEO said, I'm going to go visit you. Uh, this guy never wore a tie before in his life, ever. Barely read. Back then, he could barely read. And here he is doing a whole marketing thing. This is the craziest thing, how God shows up. There was on that board, Tony says, I've never heard of this. Like, this is brilliant. Yes. So are you willing to do a presentation? They went to the library. This is before, like, you know, PowerPoints and all that, overhead projectors and all that. So never during the middle of a meeting, one of the guys comes up and says, like, this is ridiculous. Like, why are we listening to a janitor? What's the market share for what you're proposing? God told them, do the cross. Do the cross right now. So he's at a board meeting for PepsiCo, a janitor who never wore a tie before. He went to sleep with the tie around his head so it wouldn't unravel in the middle of the night so he could have it ready for the next morning. So the, the guy's asking him, what's the market share? And the Spirit of God tells him, do the cross right now. He has no idea what the word, the phrase market share means. So he goes, And the CEO says, there is no limit. Brilliant. There is no limit to the market share. <laughs> There's no limit. It's limitless. You got to yeah. see the movie. <laughs> Dude. So it's, yeah, you got to see it. And we put it on the screen. And like I testified yesterday, man, we, COVID killed it. They shelved it. And then I get that call. Hey, it's Disney. Disney picked up your film. So it's just the coolest thing I was telling you over dinner. How much money did that guy's idea end up making uh, Cheetos and Frito-Lay? No, that's, a, that's a, over a billion dollar product line. 
and it just started as an idea. And then I love that you took the story, sold it to Disney. You were at the premiere. So you got Eva, or who did, who did you get to? Eva Longoria. Uh, ta- Eva Longoria we, takes on we, we are on opposite sides of, of, in full disclosure, some of you already know, of the political spectrum. Yeah. Right. So I worked for Trump and she and she was the Latina coordinator chairperson of the Biden campaign. So she's the director. I'm the producer. Ain't that a trip? We're going to talk about working with. OK, we're going to talk about that, too. But um, so you get her on board. She she takes that. Then you show up to the premiere. Premier. Bob. Igor. Iger uh-huh. is at the premiere, uh-huh. sitting in there. She introduces you in front of Disney Places, and all these executives. It's man's Chinese theater in LA, right? Yeah. It's packed out to the premiere and standing room only. The, the executives from Disney are there. You know, Hollywood stars are there. It's the premiere. So I'm, you know, I'm there and, and we're greeting the guests and the artists and so forth. The actors that participated and just being thankful. Richard is right next to me here. And Eva gets on the microphone and says, uh, you know, first of all, we want to thank the person whose idea, if not for him, we wouldn't be here right now. This is the person who had the idea to make this into a film. And I'm thinking they're going to see, you know, they're going to say, you know, Sam Rodriguez or good to Hollywood. Like there's Pastor Sam and then they're saying, right? Like not, there isn't, but in, in, the, in the Hollywood world is the producer guy. So I'm thinking, yeah, they're going to say Sam Rodriguez, Sam, you know, that's it. So yeah, the guy whose idea, and then she stops and goes, and Bob's there, executive, she goes, the reverend, the pastor, Samuel Rodriguez. And I'm going like, help me, Jesus. Hey. <laughs> and I'm expecting, dude, we're in Hollywood, liberal, super liberal, anti-Christian Hollywood. And she's calling me reverend pastor, introducing me. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get like eggs, you know, thrown at me or whatever. The place erupted cheering, clapping, and I'm going like, my God, we are in the last days. <laughs> and, and it was humbling. It was. You know, yeah. and to, I, had, I, never, I, I didn't tell you this just last night over dinner. I had a Holy Spirit moment right there. Right there. Because my eyes swelled up. Because the Holy Spirit told me, hey, uh, son, you can never hide your mantle. Mm. So good. You can never hide your mantle. Wherever I place you, you are what I've ordained you to be. Mm. And you are first and foremost, besides being a son, a preacher of his gospel. Mm. You're never going to be able to hide your mantle. Wherever you go, you will always be Pastor Sam. So I walked out of there convicted and comforted mm. by the fact that look what the Lord has done. Yeah. So good. So then you get contracted to make more movies. Four more, and yeah. Four talk more a little movies. bit about just your your belief when it comes to you're talking with your sons, you're talking with your team about what it takes to see a dream fulfilled, the hard work ethic, the drive. Same speech, my entire staff, church staff, ministry staff, production staff. You want to change the world, live a holy, healed, healthy, happy, humble, hungry, honoring life. The seven H's. Live a holy, healed, healthy, happy, humble, hungry, honoring life. Holy, healed, healthy, happy, humble, hungry, honoring life. All biblically substantiated. Live a holy life, 1 Peter 1.16. Live a life that is healed. And I mean completely healed. Not just mind, body, soul, spirit, relationship, and so forth. 1 Peter 2.24. A healthy life in every regard, too. 
3 John chapter 1, verse 2. Live that. A happy life, John 15, 11. Live a life of humility, Matthew 23, 12. A life of hunger, Matthew 5, 6, and a life of honor, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Live that kind of life all through the finished work of Christ. So it's not legalistic. It comes out of the womb of grace. But live the seven H's, a holy, healed, healthy, happy, humble, hungry, honoring life. Your integrity must always be greater than your influence. Mm. Your integrity must always, if your influence is greater than your integrity, you're going to have issues. But let your integrity be greater than your influence. Make those that follow you greater than yourself. So I understand I'm paving the way for the next. And my objective is to be more of a John the Baptist without losing my head. And, and so, yeah. So I, I want to I pave the way for those that follow me to do greater things. Get that. So my name is what? What's my name? Like what is my Samuel. I'm not a David. I'm a Samuel. So I get my calling. Know your calling. So when I get offers for things that I turn down all the time. Like I, I've been asked to run for office countless times by the higher ups. I was, I was just, the word coerce would be too strong. Very, very influential investors in California sat down and said, Sam, we'll give you this. We'll supply you with the X number of dollars if you run in California, mm-hmm. uh, even run for governor and come against Newsom. A bunch of stuff I was offered. But I'm a Samuel. I know my calling. I am anointed to find the David to anoint them, to speak prophetically. I'm not a David. So know your calling and be content in your calling, in your own skin, in your own mantle. And yeah, live that holy, healed, healthy, happy, humble, hungry, honoring life. Enjoy the journey. Don't have a victimization mentality. Repudiate all vestiges of entitlement. Mm. It's all by grace. Get over yourself. Um, And don't take yourself too serious, man. Laugh every single day and drink as much coffee as humanly possible. Come on. Let's go. Uh, How many books have you written? 12. Which one's your favorite? Wow. That's a great question. Which one is my favorite? Which one is my favorite? Which one took you the longest to write? Be Light. More scientific. Be Light is Nerdy Sam, is the Spock Sam. Not the Kirk Sam. Uh, and, but my favorite would be the one that just came out, Your Mess, God's Miracle. Mm. It, because this is so, you know, very transformative. It's that message, that revelation. Uh, yeah, that, that one. But I wrote a book called The Lamb's Agenda, which is totally different from my preaching books. How, which is an idea God gave me, how we're not married to the agenda of the donkey or the elephant. We're married to the agenda of the lamb. And I began that back when I was working with George W. Bush. And that, that when that put us on CNN back then, like constantly, because it's the lamb's agenda of the mm. vertical and horizontal plane of the Christian message. So yeah, I mean, it, I love writing. I'm not, I am a writer who, who, who preaches. Mm. So I'm not a preacher who writes. I'm a writer first. So I write, if, y'all, if you notice the way I preach, I do have a script and it's verbatim. So I do, I have a complete script. I write every Sunday. I preach, I preach 45 out of 52 Sundays in my church. I travel back from whatever conference because that's home. And, but I write it out. So I'm a writer that has a, by the grace of God, an anointing and calling to preach. But I love to write, man. I love to write. Mm. You are what you write. You are what you read. And you need to read constantly. Increase your Wi-Fi. Read, write, 
read, write, read, write, read, write. And this that grows this, and it will enable you to speak in a very persuasive, particular, anointed manner in spite of yourself. What are some of the leadership or business books that have really impacted you? You're like, that book really helped me in a season of my life. Jim Collins, of course, Malcolm Gladwell, super fan. Yeah. Of everything Malcolm, right? And Nicole Collins, good to great. Like, built to last, but guilt, good to great was the tipping point. Old school, back in the day, uh, a guy named Peter Drucker on organizational management and behavior, uh, cultural leadership, symbolic leadership, that sort of thing. But anything Malcolm, I'm in. Mm. I'm like all in. Anything Malcolm writes. And by the way, Malcolm, anybody know who Malcolm is? Yeah. Malcolm, Google this, Malcolm has had an encounter with Jesus. Come on. That's pretty cool. That is awesome. One of the most brilliant minds on the planet. Again, this Jesus and just very creative individuals, it's happening, man. Are you a podcast listener? I, I listen to podcasts, but very limited because I want to maintain the integrity of my content. Yeah. So I want to create content that will lead to conversation that will inevitably lead to cultural reformation. Yeah. That's my, that's my tagline. Content that will provoke a conversation that will lead to cultural reformation. And in order to like preserve the integrity and not like getting ideas from others, that's called plagiarism or yeah. chat GPT, you know, and what you're using. Um, By the but, way, when you mentioned the AI thing, did you see this past week on the news? Someone was speaking in another language and they had the AI, they had some sort of app open. It translated it through the microphone clearly, everything they were saying in English. Did you see that? So there's, there's AI apps now, driven apps, that enable you, which is crazy. So we're using it now for our ministry program. No longer do you need translation services. Your inflection, Everything. Your, your nuances. On the moment, on Dude, the spot. It's, so it's, it's Pastor Paul speaking in Spanish with your voice. Or Russian. No, Russian. All of it. But forget about Russian. Spanish is more important. Spanish. So the point is... Um, on, on a, yes. yes, and if you take antibiotics, it'll go away. Yeah. So it, <laughs> it's pretty cool, man. So it, it's it's that level. That's that what that's what inspires me in my leadership. But podcasters, I, I'm a biohacker guy. I you know so I, I Huberman and, and Gary Brecka, and David Sinclair, some of these guys. A mm. little, little bit of Joe Rogan on occasion. Yeah, um, and, and Jordan Peterson. Big Jordan Peterson fan. Mm -hmm. Like he is phenomenal. Brilliant. And his daughter. But they, Jordan is just like so great, man. So, in California, you, you, so many interesting things in are California. happening <laughs> through in your state. Uh, you, you pass. It's not mine, man. It's not mine. You really. take a strong stand for a biblical worldview. Um, and you pastor in an area where probably not everybody's going to love all the conservative ideas that you're going to stand for and preach. Talk about taking that stand and what, how that's affected your church and your congregation and the people of California because of all what we're seeing here in Oklahoma and the things that are happening in our nation. The way that we do it in order to maintain the diversity of our congregation is I never deem it as conservative or liberal. I deem it as biblical. It's the word of God. So in essence, it has nothing to do with red or blue, right or left. It's we stand on God's word. And, and so it's about 
a Christian worldview and what it looks like. And we don't mince any words. Like we do it with love. There is no animus, no angst, no consternation, no, no hatred, God forbid, no anger. So we do it in a different way. And it's California. So if I speak about holy sexuality, uh, I don't get on my stage in Sacramento and go like, listen, if you're part of this community, you're going to burn in hell in perpetuity. And you just, uh, this is the way I do it. I go like, hey guys, isn't it great how God, like he bypassed the bureaucracy. If you have any questions regarding sexuality, isn't God great how he already provided the answer? He made men and women. Isn't it great? No ambiguity, two beautiful genders and everything fits. What do I do? And then I go like, isn't it like awesome? And yeah, and the, like the beautiful model of a man and a woman, and spiritually, phys- physiologically, psychologically substantiated in reality. And they come together and they procreate and they have kids. I lay it out. How God's model for the family. So I, I point to the beauty of God's design with great specificity. And, and it, it's done in a way where people go in there and they're set free. And they get it. So yeah, you have to be nuanced, never compromising truth. Uh, our tipping point took place during the whole George Floyd thing. 2020. It's COVID. We're open. So we're the largest church that's open at that time. A lot in, of Sacramento it, churches were closed. They, they California, shut down. Yeah. There's another one called Destiny that's in Rockland that stayed open. We are in Sacramento. So we're the only large church that stayed open. We're, we stayed open. And we again, we were very careful in the way we did things. Very, very careful. And God protected us. Um, and then the George Floyd thing. My church is 40% African-American, 40% white. And it, there was so much pressure. The New York Times, Google this, they came in with a featured reporter and did a one-page profile on what took place there. And, you know, take a knee, say BLM. And I'm going like, whoa, whoa. And I had a young lady her name is April Barnes, part of our staff, African-American, 30, 33. I go, April, I've never been down this road before. April, I can't take a knee. The only one's going to get my knee is Jesus. I'm just going to be honest. But I, I, I repudiate all vestiges of bigotry and racism. Uh, I've spoken at Ebenezer Baptist Church. If you Google it, Wikipedia says I'm the one that has spoken at Ebenezer Baptist for MLK Day more than any other pastor in American history. Uh, I got the Martin Luther King Jr. Award from the Congress on Racial Equality. Uh, somebody said I'm the like the Latino MLK. I don't, I'm not. That's way exaggeration. Um, I'm, I'm a guy who eats a lot of flaming hot Cheetos. Um, <laughs> which is untrue, by the way. I don't eat processed foods. But the point to you is, <laughs> back, back to the point, uh, you know, April, what do I do? She said, she looks at me, African-American. Empathy. I go, what? She went, pastor, don't take a knee. BLM, the organization, is, is not in alignment with our biblical worldview. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't go there. It's, of course, it's very it's Marxist, socialist. The organization behind it is just, just totally counterintuitive to the Word of God. I go, what do I do? She says, just demonstrate empathy. So I gathered on stage, and I had my millennial African-Americans, which is a majority of, of that 40% that's there. They're primarily millennial. And including my future-to-be son-in-law, Christian McFarlane. 
And we, we came together and we said, we are not going to bow to any organization of man. We're not going to bow ever to any political ideology, but we are going to come together as followers of Christ under the blood of Jesus. And we're going to pray for God to bring people together. Every vestige of racism must be brought down in the name of Jesus. But we're, we're, I'm not going to do it in the name of a movement. The, I'm going to do it in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And the church exploded. Uh, it blew up. And it was my most difficult moment. But we survived it. The, the politicians saw that and went like, they, this is 2020. The sheriff came in, met with our leadership, and said, Hey, uh, yeah, we're in the New York Times now, one entire page. We saw what happened here. Uh, you guys continue to be you. If anyone dares to find, sue, attempt anything, we got you. Keep on doing what you're doing. You're bringing this entire region together. That's how we stayed open. We were never shut down. Government never came in. Wow. They didn't even dare to threaten us because we brought people together in the name of Jesus. And that's the way you do it, man. So good. So good. So powerful. Man. Can I ask you a couple more questions? No, feel free, man. Okay. Um, here's a couple of questions. The The word culture is used and thrown around a lot these days. What does culture mean to you for the areas that you lead, what you do? And how does it affect the organization? Values and virtues. The convergence of values and virtues, the mores. The moral fabric of, of whatever entity wineskin. Culture is the wineskin. It's the wineskin. And you can create culture. You can create a wineskin that serves as a facilitative platform for the wine. Be it in your home, uh, in your church, in your business, you create culture. You're anointed so the, the, to create culture. The seven culture. things you gave is the culture. Absolutely. A holy, healed, healthy, happy, humble, hungry, honoring life. Chuck Colson. Some of y'all know, may know who Chuck Colson is. Prison Fellowship. Anybody know Chuck Colson? If you do, raise your hand. Chuck Colson was mentoring me back in the day when I was working at the, at the Bush, uh, Bush White House. And Chuck Colson just took, God really placed in his heart, mentor Sammy. So he would say, Sammy, he would call me up and just brought me in. I was next to him when he had his first initial stroke that inevitably led to him uh, just, just transferring over to heaven. He, would, he looked at me and said, this is not my word. He says, Sammy, remember this. It, cultural reformation is the end game, the outcome. But the first thing you do is you confront the culture. You, you must be a countercultural narrative. So you're, you are countercultural first. Inevitably, you engage the culture, and then you reform the culture. That's the evolutionary process. So that sticks with me. You know, in order to create culture, you have to confront the current culture. You confront it with truth, with love. Psalm 89, 14 is the verse that guides me when I look at culture. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Truth and love lead the way as attendants. So as I confront culture, I elevate righteousness and justice, and I marry truth with love. If all we do is speak truth, we're mathematicians. If all we do is preach love, we're California hippies. So the moment we speak truth in love, truth with love, and truth for love, we change the world. 
That's how we change the world. So it's, but I create, you confront it, and then you provide a viable alternative. In, in the Christian world, we do great at, not everywhere, in certain sectors. Like right now, there is a great amount of silence, of acquiescence. Very few pastors are like you, especially in your generation. That's why I love you. Like I'm, one of, I'm your biggest fan because you, I've seen you and, and you speak truth to power. You address issues that very few in your generation, what everyone else is silent about, you're like, and you do it with love and, and you're addressing issues that are impacting generations and you do it with love. But you're, you're creating a culture of courage and conviction. I wanted to ask you this question, and I was thinking about it when I walked in the room. I was like, I remember that message. I don't remember everything, but I remember him sharing one one of his failures that he turned around and used it for good. As leaders, you know, we all make mistakes. We all go through seasons where we're like, oh, I could have done that better. I wish I would have done that better. How did you, in your life, um, turn a failure into something good? How did you use it to move something forward in your life or in your ministry? No, and, and all of us go through that, every single one of us. We all go through that season, all of us. Even, even the Elijahs of the world have their moments in their corresponding respective caves, right? We all go through that. Um, and we all go through the shipwreck, the losing of the ship, all, everything we laid out yesterday from Acts 27. But you, it's the ability to flip it. It's the ability to convert it to create something new from it, to learn from it. it. Again, it's that spiritual cognitive bandwidth to say, I learned, and I learned that the God of the process is the same God of the outcome. It's not like, here's the process, and inevitably God will show up when you get here. The God that is with you in the storm is the God that will meet you at the shoreline. And, and so it, everything, and I've had them. Um, back when I was in my 20s, uh, there, we, I had a ministry issue where we were church planning and it all fell apart. Um, and, and I, the onus of responsibility fell upon me and, and I learned from that. And that, that catapulted me through that learning experience to do everything else I've done since then, because it's a great learning curve. It's, it's just wonderful. At the end of the day, God has you learn, grow, don't repeat the same mistakes now, sunshine. Surround yourself with people that you're accountable to, uh, that can just hold you up and you're accountable to. Accountability is critical. Uh, and know that if Jesus was surrounded by a Peter and a John and an Andrew and a Matthew and a Thomas and a Judas, you're not better than Jesus, sunshine. So you may be surrounded by in your journey with a Peter, someone who will celebrate you one day, cut off an ear the next day in your defense. And then when you're not around, betray you on a couple of occasions. But then, then God tells you that person, yeah, very emotional, but restore them because they're going to do great things. And then you're called to Peter. And then you have your Thomases who are always going to be questioning, yeah, is that really God? Is that really God? Is it really God? And you need a Thomas to keep you on check. And then you need your Johns. You need a John to, you know, that brown nosing, beautiful kiss up. You're just great. Go get him, Pastor, right? And, and that's the person you, that end up, ends up writing your story somewhere in an island in, 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 the, next, in the Caribbean somewhere with suntan. Um, and, and, and then the Judases. I, I argue we all have a Judas. All of us have a Judas. And the number one Judas we have is not external. 
It's not someone on your staff. It's not someone on your team. It's the thoughts that betray you. Yeah, that's so good. So confront your Judas every single day. The inner me. The inner me. Your Judas is the thoughts that betray you. And Acts chapter 1, replace your Judas with something better mm. so you can get to your upper room. Come on. I love it. It's so good. All right. We got time maybe for like one more question. Um, and I've got a lot here, but I'm going to try to pick the right one here. How do you tell the difference between an, a good idea, a good business idea, and a God idea that you know, like, this is the one I chase, not this rabbit over here. This is the one I don't let go of. It's the green light, red light principle. So in addition to everything that you mentioned, and all by the grace of God, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I develop apps. We're you develop apps? Mm -hmm. What? Yeah, my spare time. What else do you do? <laughs> We're actually working on one right now. It's pretty cool, man. Okay, you write books, you make movies, you develop apps. The framing of the apps. Church. The framing of the apps, the frames, those that are app developers are pretty cool. And now with AI, it's just pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, so I'm working on an app right now with Ken Harrison, Waterstone, and a guy from Promise Keepers. Um, it's going to be pretty transformative, pretty unique. Uh, we're framing it as we speak. But there are opportunities that came. And you got to know, like, I'm going to super spiritualize this. It's going to sound super uberly pastoral. Your prayer life, you just hear from the Holy Spirit. And it's not like you need somebody to say, the Lord saith theeth runneth to the apath. And you don't, it's just a peace, your shalom in your heart, man. The peace of heart. It's like, I prayed. I talked to God every day. I'm in the spirit. And that opportunity came along and you hear it. And you hear God say, green light, red light. Now, there's two types of people here. You're either, a, 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 I won't proceed until God gives me a green light. And then there are those of, I will move forward until he gives me a red light. If you're that, raise your hand. That's me. So I'm not the one like, I'm waiting for the green light. 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 I will move until he shuts that door. Just going to move because yeah. I just repudiate stagnation. You're a mover. Yeah, I'm a mover, man. I'm obviously, I'm a hyperactive, caffeinated <laughs> mover. It's like, Let's go. <laughs> so I'm moving until, and, and, and he loves me so much that if he doesn't want me to go through a door, he is God enough to shut that door in my face, yeah, man. And he'll slam it and he'll protect me from me, which is pretty cool because we're like that. Come on, Jesus. Yeah. Any last thoughts you want to share with us this morning before we close out? We're literally called to change the world. We finish up every service at our church family. We, every service for the last 13 years is the way we close up. Church is done. We're wrapping up, right? Here's the benediction. They're holding hands. I go, hey, new season, let's do one thing together. In his name, in Jesus' name, let's go change the world. We are called to change the world, to transform. We are transformers. Societal transformation, cultural reformation, societal architects in this room, do it. Do it. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Bind every lie of the enemy. Pray over yourself. Cast out every negative thought. This is your battlefield right here. There's a battle between your mind and your mantle. Every single day, crucify yourself to Christ. Through the finished work of Christ, do it. But occupy the promises. Conquer new territories. Do what has never been done before. Change the world.